and welcome to Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Each episode, we speak to experts and practitioners in international security and defense, counterterrorism, and geopolitical current events to gain insight into the most pressing matters of global affairs. In this episode, we speak to Neil Basu, who is the Assistant Commissioner for London's Metropolitan Police Services Specialist Operations, Counterterrorism and Protective Security, and was the National Police Chief's Council Lead for Counterterrorism Policing. Much of his work has involved countering the threats from Al-Qaeda and ISIS, as well as state-sponsored actors. Mr. Basu is currently the Director for the Strategic Command Course at the College of Policing, which prepares police officers and staff for promotion to the most senior ranks in the service. Please note, this podcast was recorded just prior to the explosion at the Liverpool Women's Hospital on the 14th of November, 2021, which has now been declared a terrorist incident. Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu, thank you for joining us on NATO Deep Dive. Thank you. I'm flattered to be asked to do this. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. One question I've always wanted to to ask you, and I'll take the opportunity now, is what made you want to be a police officer in the first place? Interesting, because it's it's quite a long story, but I'll try and be brief. Um, So I grew up with, you know, with watching lots of heroes and villains on television. You know, I, I sort of laugh now when I look back at it. Audie Murphy in World War II films, The Lone Ranger, um, John Wayne, all the, you know, the people who sort of rescued people from evil. And uh, if you think about every great Shakespearean tragedy, every great Greek tragedy, there's a lot of this in there. Um, it is the it is the story of life, as writers will tell you. Uh, and I guess there was a little bit of the childish thing in me that thought that I could help make people safer. I could protect people. And I didn't really know what that was going to be when I was very young. I wanted to be a soldier. Uh, and I had a very bad car accident. And physically, I couldn't do much for about 18 months. So I drifted into university. And it was in the 80s. And everyone wanted to be a business person or a banker or a lawyer or make a fortune, you know, the kind of loads of money generation. I didn't really even want to be at university, but I I got my degree. I got a degree in economics and I did get a job with a bank. And I came out and I worked for that bank for nearly two years and I hated it. I didn't like the values. I didn't like the greed. I didn't like the attitude. And I thought, where were all those ideals I had when I was a youngster about helping to protect people? Because it's certainly not happening here. And I I foolishly thought, because I was one of those graduates who left university when the job market was booming, that I'd just get another job, I could at least. And I, I, I thought, my father was a doctor. He grew up, as part of his practice, he had the police surgeon contract in the Midlands, and he had been a police surgeon for 40 years. Um, not that long when, when I applied, but he'd been a police surgeon for a very long time, since the 70s. And uh, a lot of people in my hometown were either, it was a military town, so they were either RAF or they were police officers who were my Sunday league football referees or rugby referees. Or So I grew up with a lot of positive role models in both the military and the police. And my father did this. And I thought, well, I'll tell you what, you wanted to protect people. This is a way of doing it. This is public service, not the private sector that you joined with all the values you didn't hear. And your dad's a doctor, your mum's a nurse. 
you're not bright enough to be in medicine, but you might be bright enough to be a cop. So I applied and there was an 18 month waiting list. So I came straight out of that, um, that reverie thinking I'd just easily quit the bank and join the police service and thought, what am I going to do to pay my rent? Because I've already left the bank for another 18 months and joined a sales company. Now, if I talk about private sector values and the attitude of salesmanship back in the 80s and early 90s, you'll kind of understand where I'm coming from again. So the reason I became a police officer was because I looked at my mother and father and their public sector values uh, and the heroes they were to me and thought, I want to be the kind of person that can hold my head up high saying I did something for the public. And my dad once told me a quote, which I use all of the time, which is from Gandhi, I believe, which is there is no higher calling than to lose yourself in the service of others. Now, I wish I'd figured that out when I was much younger, but at least in my mid-20s, I made the right decision. And that's why I became a police officer. And that is the short version. Well, I'm glad you gave us uh, the more detailed version. That's absolutely fascinating and very endearing. Uh, I would say awe-inspiring too, because that just shows you I guess family values playing a big role too and, and, and the experiences of what to avoid as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So since you first joined, how has policing changed both operationally as well as in terms of uh, recruitment? Well, there's been enormous changes. I mean, it, I, I don't think people who are outside of the profession realize just how complicated a profession it is. If you think about the tens of thousands of pieces of legislation and law that society is bound to um, operate within, it's the framework in which we all sort of live together in a society. And the people who keep that together are the police and having to make split second decisions in high conflict, highly emotionally charged situations or dealing with people who are incredibly vulnerable at the worst time of their lives. Um, and these vulnerable people may not consider themselves vulnerable until whatever happens to them happens to them, whether it's assault, uh, a traffic accident, being involved in a mass casualty event like terrorism or a, you know, or a train crash or a, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. The first people that people look to to help them in those circumstances tends to be the uniform on the street. It's a police officer who's got a split second to make a decision what to do to help people. That is incredibly complex and it's only got more complicated. So in the nearly 30 years I've been in, you know, there were people were not expected and were not under so much scrutiny that they had to get it absolutely right 100% of the time uh, and that they would be examined in microscopic detail uh, for making a mistake. And I think what's changed is there is no forgiveness for making a mistake anymore. Uh, and that is a crying shame because I think it puts people off public service when they realize there is a terrible blame culture in society and everyone's looking for a scapegoat. And if you're a very young police officer on the streets making those kind of decisions, that's very difficult. I was a young detective. I had a massive caseload. Uh, I worked as a detective constable and as a detective sergeant uh, and police sergeant actually in Brixton and Lambeth and Streatham. It was incredibly busy. I think my caseload was as high as any officer has today. But the difference was people rarely interfered with my work. Uh, my supervisors were less interested. I was unlikely to be in front of a public inquiry for making a mistake. I hope I did and I think I did a very professional job but I certainly wasn't under the kind of scrutiny youngsters are today. The second thing that's changed is when I joined, and I was really proud of this, we were called the social service of last resort, 
because effectively when nobody else could help, we could. And that goes right back to my answer to question one. I thought, brilliant. We are now the social service of first resort because 10 years of massive cuts has meant that almost every time there's a vulnerability in society, there, are, there is no ambulance, there is no mental health care, there is nobody else to look after you. Uh, and so the first point of call is the police. Most of our daily crime bulletin is not crime at all. It's high risk missing persons who are either suicidal or very young and very vulnerable to awful people in society taking advantage of them. That dominates our daily crime bulletins. Now that's London, but I guarantee that's replicated across 43 forces. That is incredibly difficult. So when your own resources are challenged and your USP is to effectively cut crime and arrest criminals, and you can't do that because only 20% of your work is now doing that, how do you square that? Incredibly complicated. So that leads me to your last point about recruitment. What kind of people are we trying to recruit who can deal with the demands of that that I've just described to you? We are trying to professionalize the career. We're trying to say to people, if you can cope with everything I've just described, you are operating at a master's level. You should be given a degree because that's what you do for a job. We are trying to attract people who've got the intelligence to do a degree. They don't have to have one, um, but they've got the intelligence to do it because this job is so horribly complex and very, very difficult. And you need to be well-read and well-capable of absorbing a lot of information and acting very quickly upon it. Um, so the kind of caliber of person we're looking for is, I, I can only put this, much higher, but we still want the street smarts and the common sense that comes from not being naive, being mature, knowing a lot about life. So that's never changed and should never change. Um, and I don't think we should go down the route of hiring merely master's graduates from universities who don't have that um, grounding in real life as well. So it's complex and we need to be very careful about who we recruit because We've spent two centuries building a reputation, and I think everything that's happened in the news recently, I don't know when this is going out, but if you look at Wayne Cousins, one police officer can ruin 200 years of reputation. One, and there are 130,000 of us. And we all feel that that's what he did to us. And Wayne Cousins, for those who may not be aware, is the uh, police officer who uh, abducted a, a, a woman during the lockdown and then brutally uh, murdered her. In, in terms of the recruitment aspect, uh, as, as you are one of the most senior police officers, not just in the UK, but within the Five Eyes network as well, which involves Britain, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, you're also uh, a person of Asian heritage as well. Do you feel your position can help demonstrate that law enforcement is a career for ethnic minorities to be not only a part of, but to succeed as well? The short answer to that is yes. I mean, you really underestimate your impact on other people. If you're, I hope you've known me a long time, Sajjan. You know I'm not an arrogant person. So I don't, I don't really consider myself an assistant commissioner. You know, I say to chief constables, and I'm running a, a leadership program for future chief constables now, I say you need to remember you were a constable once. The difficulty with that, that's very humble and that's very good, but you forget your impact on other people as you go up in the ranks and as you become more important and as people see you more often. And therefore you forget what impact you're having on their ambition and their willingness to succeed. And there is no doubt about it because I get a lot of feedback. I do a lot of mentoring 
in black and Asian communities and with female officers and with people of protected characteristics who look at you as a role model that they can succeed if you can. And that is so true. I mean, there's, it's obviously far more complicated than that, but you should be willing to, um, to stand up and show those people that it is possible. And some people don't want that. You know, when I was young, I did not want to be seen as an Asian police officer. I wanted to be seen as a police officer and as a very good one. And everyone I meet who has protected characteristics, whether they're female, black, Asian, whatever their background, doesn't want to be judged on that. It's a bit like Martin Luther King. They want to be judged on the content of their character and their technical capability. We all do. But actually, it does help to see other people in the room who look a bit like you or sound like you or have the same background as you who are getting on. It really helps. Absolutely. And your uh, humility is what has always struck me in every interaction. And it, 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 quite frankly, it has... Uh, cross-sectional appeal. I see that being one of the most important aspects in in this uh, work that you do. I, if we move to, I guess, predominantly where we, uh, what brought us into contact in the first place is is terrorism. Uh, yeah. During the the peak of ISIS's growth uh, between 2015 to 2018, and and in fact thereafter you were very much on the front line of dealing with the threat to the UK. When an officer would brief you of an emerging terrorist attack unfolding, what would be the very first thoughts occurring in your mind? Yeah, I mean, it's a... Do you know what? I mean, I, I always feel a little bit traumatized by the entire experience. I, for your audience, I've been in counter-terrorism for six and a half years. I stepped down on July the 5th, 2021. July the 4th, 2021 was the first time in six and a half years I wasn't permanently on call for a terrorist attack, 24-7, 365 days a year. And I, that has been, I mean, I do describe that 4th of July as my very own Independence Day in some respects, because the first thing that goes through your mind and you can't help it, because I've seen a great deal of death and destruction in my wider policing career is, how many people have died? How many people are about to die? How many more people are going to die because I can't stop this? That's what first goes through your mind. And that the reason I joined policing in the first place comes absolutely front and centre in that moment. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that for a split second you're frozen because you just think, oh my God, it doesn't get any worse than this. And it doesn't, you know, terrorism is considered the... I mean, my colleagues in organised crime, which is where I made my mark, was countering gangs and organised crime. My colleagues would say far more people die because of that, you know, daily around the United Kingdom than ever die in a terrorist attack. It doesn't matter. The consequences of a terrorist attack are the profound psychological damage to society that it causes. That's why terrorists do it. And trying to say to yourself, how do I stop this becoming even worse than it is, is the first thing that goes through your mind. And if you are not equipped or resilient enough or competent or experienced enough to deal with it, you would freeze. Uh, I like to think we didn't freeze. And many of my colleagues in the Five Eyes have discussed in the past looking at how the UK responded in that terrible year of 2017. And we've obviously had five attacks since then, six attacks now. Since then, um, I think they were impressed that the UK didn't fold under that pressure. And it didn't fold because we are a very well-drilled, experienced, 
team alongside our security service colleagues. So the next thing you start thinking of, after that split second of fear, you start thinking, what's my time frame? We use these terribly military expressions of collapsing time frame. So how long have I got to get my hands around this? Who is briefing me? How good are they? Do I trust them? Have they got enough detail? If they haven't, and nobody has enough detail, where are they gonna get that detail from? How quickly can they get up on the threat? How quickly can they get more coverage on the threat? How quickly can we deploy resources to where they count? Are they already en route? They're quite often already en route because this is a well-drilled machine. And have we got the right people with the right skills to deal with this? And what is the scale of it? What is the scale of it? So, um, you know, I'm due to give evidence again in Manchester um, in, a, in a few weeks' time. You know, the scale of that was, you know, a bit like 7-7, almost unthinkable to the British public. So those are just some of the things going. I mean, I, I could go through a checklist of three, four hundred things that go through my mind, which because of experience go through my mind very quickly. But if you were sitting there going through them from one to four hundred, you'd probably spend the first day doing that and and be fired very quickly. It seems very, very intense and also uh, mentally demanding as well, because in all my interactions with you, it has always been abundantly clear that you feel the loss of every civilian and police officer that has either been killed or injured as a consequence of terrorism. And you mentioned the, the Manchester attack where so many young people uh, were killed. I can tell you that from my own personal experience, that was very emotionally challenging uh, for myself. Uh, so how does one deal with that whilst also ensuring that the investigations are ongoing and the, the perpetrators are brought to justice? Well, I think when people speak to people like me, they want the they want the comforting answer that we're we're professionals. We do you know we're trained, we're highly trained. We get on with this. I always go back to that remarkable quote when a journalist was questioning George Bush on how he slept at night because of the war, uh, and I think it was the first. Um, I think it was Afghanistan rather than Iraq, um, but it may have been the first Iraq war. And he said, "Well, I sleep like a baby." And then they asked Colin Powell. Um, whether he slept like a baby, given what his commander-in-chief had said. And he said, oh, yeah, I sleep like a baby. I wake up every four hours screaming. And I thought, you know, that is that is true. And people don't want to hear it. Um, but, yeah, it is incredibly challenging. And the reality is, is because you are trained, and this is what you were trained to do, and this is, it goes right back to the answer to your first question, is what's your core purpose of being here? Well, it's to protect people. And you keep going until you are confident that people are safe. And you don't stop and think about it until you're convinced that that is the case. That That's what you do. And the resilience comes, I used to think resilience came from, and I'm training lots of people about this at the moment, it's what makes you think you're resilient enough to be a, a chief officer. and. The reality is I used to think it was, well, family and friends and, um, you know, colleagues and all of that support around you and your physical and mental fitness to do the job. And it isn't actually, all of those things are incredibly important, by the way. I don't dismiss them at all. You need all of those things. Um, but what you really need is a sense of purpose. You really need to know that you're doing the right job and you're in the right place at the right time because that's what keeps you going. Because without that sense that you're doing the right thing, it would be impossible. Absolutely. In, if we're looking at the, the challenges that, 
that exist uh, as they've evolved. Uh, what what developments have surprised you over the last 18 months during the pandemic, which perhaps would have been hard to anticipate prior to uh, the lockdowns? Oh, I mean, I mean, you're far more of an expert on this than I am, Sajjan. So I, I bet you could... Uh, I mean, I, th- I think the two things um, that I think are... The really surprising things are, you know, the... Um, a lot of terrorists obeyed the government's directions because they were probably as terrified of the pandemic as everyone else. <laughs> so that, you know, in reality, um, the threat reduced because of that, didn't increase. But what I felt, and I've said this publicly many times, what I was nervous about increasing was people um, sitting in their bedrooms gestating over um, propaganda and imagery and getting more and more radicalized and more and more vulnerable because they didn't have wider protective factors of society. They weren't going out meeting people. They weren't seeing other people who might have less extreme views. They were just, they would be intensely looking at stuff and developing more and more radicalized instincts. And I I strongly believe that we are not going to see the full results of what the pandemic has done to people who've been in that environment for a long time. Um, but it will it will happen. And I, I can't, because I've been out of it, I'm not going to speculate on what the motive is or and clearly can't for subjudice reasons on recent attacks. Um, but my biggest concern was always that malleable section of society being more and more drawn into propaganda on the web, which has become the de facto war propaganda tool of choice for terrorists. So um, so I don't think that surprised me. I mean, I think I think what surprised me is we haven't had as much of it as I thought might happen. But I think that we're very early in the time frame. Uh, and the second thing is, and I don't want to get all political about it, I think it was a surprise to everyone was the rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the consequences of that for our future, I think, are very dim indeed. So I think... I may have stepped down from this role, but my successor's successor will be dealing with the same problems that I dealt with over the last six and a half years because of that move, is my view. Well, you touched upon Afghanistan. That's something I was wanting to, to ask you also. Is Are you worried about the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan that it could eventually impact on the UK directly? But with the potential resurgence of al-Qaeda, as well as other groups, which could then encourage British nationals to travel to Afghanistan and Pakistan, like we saw in the pre and post 9-11 period? Yes, is the simple answer. I mean, I I couldn't have put it better myself. Your question answers it. Um, I'm incredibly concerned about all of that. And I, I think our kind of our ability to see that um, to see that because of our experience um, should be highly attuned to that threat. Um, I hope it is. Well, this is probably almost an impossible question to answer. Is that what options do we have to to deal with this? Uh, we have legislative options that were put in place that would prevent people travelling to areas in which we know terrorist training is taking place. So the designated uh, uh, area offence. Um, so that was put in place as part of the learning from previous years, and that's obviously a, a, a government decision. Um, but it would be based on intelligence. So there, there is an option there to prevent travel. We are, um, we, yeah, 
we're doing what we're doing every day, which we've been doing every day for many years, which is looking at the threat unfolding and taking covert and overt action against people that we think are either becoming radicalized or have become radicalized and are now a serious threat. The danger is, of course, that the numbers become overwhelming for the resource that's currently in it. And um, I think we've made that point very clearly to the government, um, certainly since I joined CT Counterterrorism in 2015. And the government has stepped up and has kept the resource where it's required against the threat. It must continue to do that. That's that's. I'm not being political about that. It just must continue to do that. Uh, and it is very tempting, you know, in austerity and in the middle of a pandemic, you know, we're still in a pandemic which will have years to run and the consequences of that and the consequences for budgets and the consequences for prioritization. I get all of that. I know it's a massive problem, but because of what's happened and lots of other effects on the world, terrorism is still going to be a clear and present danger for, in my view, my lifetime. To that point, uh, if we look at Al-Qaeda's terrorist rival, uh, ISIS, do you still feel that ISIS is a existing threat or that it will evolve into different manifestations but still pose a challenge for all of us? Well, I mean, yes, they're, they're still a challenge. They're still a threat. They weren't eradicated because of the um, winning the, the battle, on, uh, winning the war on the battlefield didn't eradicate them. I mean, it was, I think it was um, Bin Laden who talked about becoming an idea rather than a movement because movements and organizations are easy to target. You know, it's what military and policing and security services do very effectively. Countering an idea is very difficult and ISIS is still a very clear idea and ideal for some people. Um, and that is still a massive problem for us. So yeah, they, they pose a continuing threat. Um, they're, it's much harder for them to organize. That's great. Disrupting terrorist organizations, making them difficult to organize and plan and plot and communicate is absolutely what we should be doing. It's definitely harder for them to do that. But the more we withdraw from the CT you know, sphere, the, the easier it gets for groups to become resurgent. And the ideology hasn't gone away. Unless I've missed something. I've only been out of the game for four months. I don't think I have. Um, you know, it's still a very clear and present danger. And I, you know as well as I do that Al-Qaeda had a very different business model to ISIS. Um, you know, a much more patient one and a much more long-term one. And that certainly hasn't gone away. Absolutely. It's uh, a, a threat that unfortunately is going to impact on all of us at some point. I guess it's a question of when and not if. Yeah, and it's just really important to reinforce, particularly if... Um, you know, members of the public listening to this would be utterly terrified by some of the things I've said, I, I suspect. But there is something about the Five Eyes community has been incredibly effective um, in dealing with the, uh, the terrorist threat. Now, it doesn't look like that because of the number of attacks against Western democracies, but the number of attacks that have been disrupted and stopped because of the effectiveness of that machine is really impressive. It's a lot of stuff that no one ever hears about, will never know. But I think it's important for people like me to be able to say it out loud. People are being protected every day and because that machine is good and it's resourced by governments and it's competent, capable and full of experienced people. My view is just we need to maintain that. 
do you think that's part of the problem in the sense that, as you as you mentioned, that the police are working twenty four seven, not just in the UK but across many nations, to foil and disrupt plots that perhaps don't get the same attention as an attack does, and and therefore there is this uh, view in the minds of some that well, terrorism has diminished; it's no longer uh, the concern that it used to be. But whereas, in fact. Uh, officers are working all the time to try and prevent something very bad from happening. Yeah, I think that's true um, for the wider public, but it isn't true for governments because they get briefings, you know, every day. Um, and they get certainly get personal briefings every week in the UK from intelligence professionals sitting alongside people like me. So I think we keep it. They get the intelligence feed so they know it's important. Um, and of course, in this country, we have the Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre, who sees all of the intelligence and effectively is independent of government and sets the threat level. So, um, uh, and I know the people who run that, and I'm impressed by them, and I'm impressed by their access and their ability and their analytical capability. And we should pay attention when they tell us the threat is rising. We should pay attention when they say the threat isn't as bad as it was. And we do get consulted on that. Um, but it is their independent decision and they're the people who see the full picture. I think it is a problem keeping people's focus on resource requirement because um, being able to put good prevention in place is incredibly costly. There is no doubt about it. It is not, no, no one, absolutely no one I've ever met would query the need to have all of the resources to respond to an actual attack. Um, it becomes a bit more of a, uh, an esoteric or academic argument to say I need all of these resources to prevent one because of course it's it's a kind of your your return is uh, I used to laugh when I came into CT is I wasn't used to looking at a daily crime bulletin and seeing a nil return every day and thinking well that's a bit odd whereas of course that's exactly what you want you every day you want to see that nothing happened well that in our modern world of judging how effective and efficient our resources are, um, that is what you should be concentrating on, the fact that nothing happened. But actually, that's quite difficult to convince people that it's worth the hundreds of millions of pounds of investment that it takes to make sure nothing happens. Right. Having a mundane uh, period is actually a success uh, that you, in many ways, want to keep and maintain. Massive. I'm always, it's always hysterical that my friends, and particularly my mother, say, oh, I haven't seen you on TV recently. That is a good thing, mother, if you're listening. <laughs> well, in terms of seeing you on TV, so pivoting to another aspect uh, that you've been involved in, in terms of the security challenges, is that of state actors that have posed a threat uh, to uh, the UK. Uh, is there a different process involved when it comes to dealing with the threat of state actors as compared to, uh, say, terrorist groups? Um there's an awful lot of similarities in terms of the requirement for cross-government, international cooperation, um, intelligence and law enforcement, sharing of in, uh, information. It's obviously much harder because it's at a, the highest security levels possible, um, but the fundamental principles are the same. Uh, there is no single agency, no single government, no single um, part of Whitehall that can deal with that on its own. It needs to be a... Um, deep and broad approach to the issue and that is a very clear and present danger that actually will be is often probably um, 
better um, long term is probably better dealt with by um, political weight and uh, a lot of other a lot of other tactics that are way way above my pay grade. Well, sticking briefly with the, this dynamic, uh, we're seeing right now accusations that Russia is playing a role in hybrid warfare to do with the migrant crisis on the border with uh, Belarus and uh, and Poland. There's also concerns about cyber th- issues and hacking and, and state-sponsored activities uh, there. Uh, are you concerned about the role of Russia and China in terms of what they can do or potentially can do to another country? Um I'm hesitating, Sergeant, because I think the answer to that is yes, I'm concerned about it. Um, uh, I think open source wise, you do, you've only got to read um, things that journalists say to kind of understand that there is there is deep concern about the stability of the world and the ability of, um, I mean, this is a NATO podcast, <laughs> so you know, the ability of um, NATO, United Nations, other countries to coalesce around um, threats and how they are manifesting themselves in other parts of the world are a very clear source of anxiety for people in the national security community. There is no doubt. Nobody is taking these things lightly. Uh, and neither am I. Uh, many people. But if you could go back in time and sort of tracking back to what we were discussing earlier, what one piece of advice would you give to a young Neil Basu that you wish someone could have told you about uh, your career uh, as you were about to take part in it? It's a classic question, isn't it? I mean, I have been asked it a lot, and I, I, it's really quite hard to understand what that one piece of advice is. I, um, because a lot of it's gone really well. You know, I hope no one has listened to anything I've said today and thought, my God, I feel sorry for him. I mean, I don't feel sorry for myself. I've had the most amazing career. Um, you know, I'm close to the end of it, but I, I finished it. I'm a, I consider myself a career detective, and being head of counterterrorism is pretty much as good as it gets. Um, so I don't, I don't feel like you would. I mean, the advice was the advice a, a very good friend gives me all of the time is relax and enjoy it a bit more. That's quite difficult because it's come with some of the things we've um, we've talked about. But the strong sense of purpose, figuring out very quickly or more quickly what what it is you what it is about you that makes you who you are and what is it that really gets you out of bed in the morning and this is quite difficult to say to a 17 18 19 20 mid 20s perhaps even early 30s person because you're still working all of that out but if someone had the opportunity to say do you know what you everything i told you in the answer to the first question that's you that's really what makes you tick so find something that delivers that for you would be the best thing. And don't forget, it isn't all about that. Life isn't all about that. You know, we're because I'm in policing and I consider it a vocation, not switching off 24-7-365 sounds like a curse to some people. I consider it a bit of a privilege and it is a it is a vocation. It isn't just a job. But it can become absolutely all consuming. And I meet lots of police officers and members of police staff who do incredible things every day and forget they've also got incredible families and friends and hobbies and interests. And the one thing I would say is don't forget, find your purpose, really be good at it, 
because it'll it'll make your job not seem like a job at all. But just remember to keep something back for yourself and the people who love you. Well, these are pearls of wisdom here uh, that I think we should all uh, take on board. And I think it's also important to point out the sacrifices that the police often make in terms of their personal lives because it has a huge bearing in terms of the work that they do, uh, their commitment, how challenging counterterrorism is, and then that that has a knock-on effect because police also have private lives too, uh, which perhaps doesn't necessarily get the attention that it, it could do. Yeah, absolutely. This is one final question then, uh, Neil. So you're currently with the, the College of Policing. So uh, what, what does that entail exactly? And um, is, it, is, it a, is it nice to be able to, to do something where you're giving back to uh, the, the police uh, training aspect that perhaps is, is so important in producing the, the, the key future leaders in, in law enforcement? It's just been the most amazing privilege. I kind of suspected that I would really like it. I mean, you've been incredibly kind to me, Sajid, by calling me humble and, you know, uh, and recognizing the humility of me. But this has not been an entirely selfless exercise because when you get towards the end of your career and you've amassed all of this experience, you kind of want somebody to listen to you. Now, that's not going to be my kids. Sorry, kids, if you're listening, because, you know, you don't want another lecture from dad. But people who are on their way up this career, who are 10 years behind you, really want to listen. They're like sponges. It's like having children and rearing children in front of you again. I don't mean to patronize them. Um, I actually mean to praise them because they're so eager to learn. So that's a huge privilege to be able to stand there and give a few pearls of wisdom and hope that they take one or two things that might help them in what is a very hard profession. So it's been an incredible privilege. And the other thing is, of course, is we're all very fond of saying, well, it wasn't like that in my day. and They'll never be able to do as good a job as me and stuff. And then suddenly you meet 50-odd people on my course and you think, my God, policing's in safe hands. So, um, yeah, it's been brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I would say, because you were, I think, um, I read something about, you know, um, whether they're, they're, would I like to demystify anything about policing as a professional police officers or members of police staff. And the one thing I would, we do an incredibly hard job, but you said it in this, um, you said it in this podcast, you know, we're not robots. They're human beings who have very interesting, difficult lives, just like every other member of society. And yet they still choose to get out of bed and try and protect people every day. And, you know, their job isn't to be authoritarian and in conflict all the time. They do things that are horrific and takes a massive toll on them. Um, and they do it because they are the vast majority of them are trying to protect people every single day. And I think the misconception is that they are somehow there to stop your fun. You know, they are precisely there for the opposite reason, to make sure that you live in a society that's safe enough for you to have some fun. Uh, and I sometimes wish that people would see us more as the human beings we actually are. Hopefully, uh, this uh, interview can provide that uh, that perspective that perhaps people were not uh, aware of before. Uh, for me, I have to say, even though I've known you for quite a while, it has been uh, very enlightening and, and insightful um, and, and seeing so many aspects that I didn't necessarily uh, think about uh, in, in detail before, but it's giving me a lot of food of thought for actually the the 
the dynamics uh, and also the nuances of what police have to to have to handle and and deal with. So I'm, I'm most grateful to you for providing uh, the time to be able to uh, take a deep dive in in what we're actually uh, talking about. My absolute pleasure, and thank you very much because I found it. Um, it's been a very cathartic experience, Sajjan. Thank you. Well, you're most welcome, and uh, thank you so much again for for being on the NATO Deep Dive uh, podcast. And we hope to have you again at some point. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. I'm your host, Dr. Sajjan Gohel. Deep Dive is brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. The production and research team are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the deep dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.